0: you would like to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter four. We're beginning a series called "Confident Christianity," and I am just so convinced that we need more people these days that are confident in their faith, that can speak out boldly about what they know, and have really got that sense of security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, when we're talking about confident Christianity, we obviously are talking about confidence in the Lord Jesus himself. Confident in knowing who he is, confident in knowing what he's done for us, what he's doing for us now and what he will do for us. And all of that brings a great sense of confidence. But what I do want to do is I want to to structure this series so we look at confidence in the context of Christ's coming. Because I think that's important. Confidence in the claims that he made. Confidence in the compassion that he showed in his miracles. Confidence as well in the whole matter of correctives in his teaching. And then confidence in the crucifixion, which is absolutely central. The whole redemptive event of the cross and resurrection. And then confidence in that consummation. That fact that it's all going to come together gloriously and we're going to see the will of God fulfilled perfectly in the end. So, that's the basis of our confidence, and we're going to start by looking at confidence in the context. And I like this Galatians 4 verse. Uh, Galatians 4 verse 4 says this, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's an amazing statement packed into this Galatian letter. It is just such a full statement. When the fullness of the time had come, that means that God knew exactly the right moment to send Jesus. And the fullness of time indicates to us that there was a preparatory work that had been done. It says, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so you can see even in that there's purpose, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as son. So from one son, the son, we go to many sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Now as we're going through this series on confident Christianity, in many ways what we're doing is we're testing Christianity's central argument, which is this, that God came as a man to bring humanity back back to himself. That's central, isn't it, to our whole understanding. There's more things I could say, but if you want something that we can say, that's what we're testing out as the central argument of our faith. It is that God came as a man to bring humanity back to himself. And I want you to have that in mind, even as we're speaking initially about the context of Christ's coming. And to make it simple, I'm going to talk first of all about the scriptural setting for Christ's coming. And then I'll say a little bit about the historical setting and then something too about the spiritual setting. So quite a simple outline of where I want to go. Let me talk first of all about the scriptural setting of Christ's coming. I'm going to read two passages. I'm going to read from Hebrews, chapter 1. In fact, I'll read the whole of chapter 1 and just dip a little bit into chapter 2. It says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to his son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And I'd love to go on because in many ways in reading that passage it sets the scene for everything I want to say. It talks about the miracles, the signs and the wonders it touches on the teaching of the Lord Jesus and goes on and talks about those who heard him communicating as well. It talks about all that went before. It talks about the, the, the prophets that spoke to the fathers. It says amazing things about who Jesus is. God the Father saying to Jesus the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I tell you this much. If there are people around who doubt the deity of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, God the Father doesn't. <laughs> God the Father is absolutely confident that his son is who he claims to be. God made flesh. It's good just to see these things when we're talking about confident Christianity. But I want to just backtrack a little bit on some of these things and spell it out a little more clearly. But before I do, let me add some verses from First Peter. These two passages together have a lot of things in common and it will help us to see the two side by side. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials The prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Those things that I've just read to you are tremendous Bible passages that teach us about what the Bible itself is. It's a testimony to itself within those words. And it's a real help to understand what scripture is about. Now, the reason there is a scriptural setting for the coming of Christ is that God is a God who wants to reveal himself to his people. You know, we could spend all our lives trying to search for God, but if God had not chosen to reveal himself to us, we would never find him. So isn't it great to know that we've not been led astray to dumb idols, but we've come to the living God who speaks. Now through the Old Testament he spoke to prophets who proclaimed the word to the people and then in these days he speaks to us through his son and continues to speak to us even though the testimony is also reinforced by those who've heard him. In the Old Testament we have the prophetic word, in the gospels we have the word of Jesus and then in the epistles we have what the apostles bring to us from the teaching of the Lord. So everything in scripture centres around the Lord Jesus himself. Even those Old Testament scriptures are there to bear witness to him. And God wants us to understand some things. Now, certain things can just be understood from the way that the world is. You don't have to have read your Bible to realise that this world, if it is intended to be right, has got things in it that are wrong. In fact, sometimes people who haven't read the Bible throw that at Christians and say, if your God is a God of love, why is there so much wrong in the world? Well, if they want to know the answer, the Bible is very good at explaining exactly that. And the interesting thing is this, I think everybody acknowledges that the world has got a tension between good and evil. But you know, if you look at the tension between good and evil, there are some very interesting things that you can see. And you can see this even without reading your Bible. This is just called applying normal intelligence. Because if you look at the tension between good and evil, you realise that that which is evil actually is a corrupt goodness in that the most evil people in the world use their intelligence in order to do evil things. The intelligence itself is good, but what they do with it is a corruption. And it's important to realise that, because what the Bible shows us very clearly is that in the original purposes of God, it was his goodness that was to be displayed. And we also see that before mankind was on this earth, evil had already entered the system. Because and we've read verses now that explain this, that before there was a human creation, there already was an angelic creation. An angelic creation that was there to worship God, but there was also there to serve the creation that was to come. But within that angelic creation, there was a rebellion, led by one who should have been the absolute star among all the angelic hosts, But there within that angelic realm, there was this rebellion that occurred. And the Bible shows us that that is where the evil comes from, from that self-centeredness. Now, we cannot put all of the blame externally because the Bible also shows us that when man was put on the earth, man was given the opportunity... To choose. Because God wanted the crown of his creation. Because God makes a distinction between us and the animal kingdom. He doesn't just see us as a continuation of it. The crown of his creation has the privilege of being able to choose. This is the great gift that God gives to humankind. That you can have that which God himself has, the ability to choose. And yet, in choosing, man chose wrongly. Now, you can see that there is an interplay here. Because when you read the account in the early chapters of Genesis, you can see very clearly that there's external temptation, but there's also that which is the exercising of our choice that enables us to go off track. Now, many people can talk like this. We can talk about the fact that even though mankind has, has, using the Bible term, fallen, there's still a conscience. And it's quite remarkable that even though the conscience itself is twisted, everywhere you go in the world, you'll find that there is a conscience. Even amongst people that don't particularly line themselves up with the will of God, there is a conscience. There's a seeking after God. Sometimes people close the gap with other things, sometimes with their own intellectual ability and almost make themselves into a little God, thinking that they're more clever than anyone else in the whole wide world. But whatever there is, there's a seeking after something and all of these things are acknowledged. But when you come to the Bible you begin to see God's explanation and how God sets these things for us. So there's a certain amount that you can just pick up by living in this world, as it were, reading creation's story in nature. But you pick up a whole lot more when you start reading this book. Because God has not just left it to us to glean the clues from the world in which we live. There is a certain amount that you can pick up from creation And the Bible tells us that we should do that. That people should be picking up the clues from creation, realising that there's a beauty in this world, there's a design, there's a purpose. And yet also seeing that there's a a corrupting of that goodness. And it's interesting because the corrupting of the goodness comes from a corrupted goodness. (laughs) It's as if there's that tendency that not only twists, but wants to twist as well. And all of that can be observed. But when you come to the Bible, you start realising that God is doing something that is absolutely amazing. Because right from the beginning of the Bible, you discover that God has got a plan. And God's plan is absolutely amazing. I'm going to be honest with you and say, the reason I became a Christian in my teens is because I was overwhelmed at the incredible plan of salvation that God has. I know different people come to the Lord for different reasons, but for me, as I looked at it, I just thought, this is stupendous. This is incredible. That God himself should be prepared to take on human nature so that at one point in time, he can deal with all that is wrong in order to give us the opportunity to put everything right. It is such an amazing plan that, you know, sometimes I just, I'm lost for words, which is a real problem for a preacher because you're meant to be explaining the plan and sometimes I'm thinking, you know, this is just so amazing, I just don't even know how to put it into words. It is incredible what God has done. But God knows how to put it into words and that's why we've got the Bible. And in a sense, what we have is an amazing story here of what God not only says, but what he's done in order to set Jesus right in the centre of history. Let me give you some kind of indication as to how it works. Well, in order to prepare for this amazing plan to be executed, God has to bring some instruction to people so that they'll understand what it's all about. And in order to bring that instruction, he gathers a people to himself. Now, this is a great scheme, really, that you start off by teaching a few so that the few that you teach can then instruct the many. And... Don't get all tied up as to why did God choose this group and not that group and these people and not that people. The simple thing is God chose and when God chose, it wasn't so that the truth should be limited. It was so that the truth should be spread out to everybody. And the group that he chose in the first instance were really the people that were going to be taught some of the symbolism, the types, the principles, so that there would be an understanding of what God wanted to do. Now, God's plan was always this, that he himself would come and pay the price for our rebellion. That was his plan. Being a totally just God, when mankind rebelled, God having set certain boundaries and explained what would happen if those boundaries were crossed, being a just God, he was obliged to fulfil everything that he said. And because he made it plain that if they were to choose to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, it would result in death, and that was the punishment, and so death spread to the whole of the human race, and not just the kind of deadness that means that after so many years we, we, we keel over and that's the end of us, not talking about just physical death, but there's also the death which is like a separation from God because we were intended to know a fullness of life that most people don't know. They just have an existence because when Jesus came, he said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. The implication being that most people don't have life to the full. In fact, I could push it even further and say, as it does in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that people are actually dead because of trespasses and sins and need to be made alive in Christ. So we have this challenge that, you know, the world needs redeeming because having rebelled, the world sits under the judgment of God experiencing death, and and not just humanity, but when mankind decided to go his, her, own way, the whole of creation suffered. And I don't know how to explain this, but the fact that humanity ends up warped, it's as if the whole world ends up warped as well. I don't believe that in the original purposes of God when the sun shines it should do anything other than bring joy and gladness and cause the harvest to come. I don't think it was in the original plan of God that there should be melanoma and skin cancer. I don't believe that it was in the original purpose of God that there should be tidal waves and floods. I don't believe that it was in the original purpose of God that there should be sickness in the world. I don't believe that it was in the original purpose of God that there should be any kind of decay or death. I don't believe these things were there. I don't believe it was in the original purpose of God that animals should be set against animal and that things should be the way they are. Now I don't know what they should be. I don't know exactly how it would all work. You know, I understand the food chain looks perfectly alright and it all seems to be like that. But somehow I'm left with a conclusion that it's not quite what God really originally intended. And that we need to see a release of even the creation from all the things that go wrong. So that's why I think in the end we need a new heaven and a new earth because then God can put everything right and that's where we're heading. And in the end, if you want to be confident in your Christianity, you need to be confident in the consummation of things so you see the end as well as the beginning. But let's stick with the beginning for the moment. And what we see here is that right at the beginning, God is deciding... We're declaring, because he's already decided, declaring that he's going to put right what has gone wrong. So even in that moment of rebellion, he's saying that the seed of woman will deal with the problem, will bruise the head of the serpent, will bring in a whole new order, a new era. says that even in bruising the head of the serpent, the seed of woman will experience... The heel being damaged. And you're getting a picture right from the beginning that God knows exactly what he's going to do. But he has to prepare us for it. So he starts speaking. Speaks in the garden. He speaks when they're removed from the garden. He speaks through prophets. He begins to draw a people to himself. The children of Abraham. Puts principles in there. Even with Abraham having to experience the offering up of his son, it's a picture beginning to say to the people, look, you need to understand the way God works. Very early on, when people are aware of sin in their own lives, what is the solution that God offers for sin? It's sacrifice. Teaches them that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But what they need to understand is that they're being taught by a picture and that the picture is not the reality. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that cleanse you from sin. It's always God that cleanses you from sin, but he was doing that when these things were offered to prepare them for a better offering. And so all the way through the Old Testament, you get God gathering a people and teaching them principles. Even to the point where he gives them a law. Now, they struggle with the law. And the law was never God's ultimate plan. In fact, the Bible teaches us the law was a temporary measure that was introduced. Now, why was it introduced? Well, it was actually introduced at a time when God's people were going to move into what the Bible refers to as the promised land. And the interesting thing is, as they were going to move into the promised land, God was going to move in with them. He'd already given them the design for the tabernacle, and he says, this is where I'm going to dwell in the midst of you. But of course, if God is going to dwell in the midst of you, and he is a holy God, you've got to clean your act up in order to have God's presence like that in the midst of you. So God says to them, now this is what I'm like. You know, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. You've got to be like this, you've got to be like this, you've got to be like this. And he just spelt it out to them. And so the people became under the law. But there's a difficulty living under a law if you're still got the same old problems on the inside. Because no matter how much you try to get it right under the law, you still fail. And so the law was just a a temporary measure. It was added so that we could see the standard that God requires, but as Paul puts it so eloquently in the letter to the Galatians, it was really like a schoolmaster that was meant to lead us to Christ. In fact, the word that's used is almost more like the the slave that would take you to school than the schoolmaster because Christ in the end is our teacher. But the law was intended to bring us to that point where we say, come on, we need Jesus. We can't do this on our own. So I want you to see that when God was preparing to execute his plan on the earth, having decided even from the foundation of the world that Jesus would lay his life down at a point in time. Because it speaks in the book of Revelation about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This had been agreed. There'd been a conversation in the Godhead. Father, Son and Holy Spirit had conversed. As they did at the time of creation when they said, let us make man in our own image. They're conversations. If you struggle with the concept of a trinity, you'll struggle even more in trying to understand love in God, in isolation. How can someone be love on their own? Love is something which is relational. It's there because... The Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God is love. And we are loved out of the overflow of God's love. God didn't become love when he had something to love because there was already love in God right there in the beginning. And within the Godhead, there was a conversation where God the Son says to God the Father, and please don't think of these as three totally separate entities, because there's a closeness that is beyond human closeness. Although we're talking about a conversation, it's almost like I'm saying to me that I will, do you understand? It's almost like an internal conversation. Because God did not victimize his Son and say, you go and do it. It was an agreement. You see, one of the things that people struggle with is this. God knew that we would find it difficult to get our head around his nature. So long before he made it plain that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he spent generations hammering it into people, the Lord your God is one Lord. And he said, one, 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 one. Every now and then you get a little glimpse, like the angels around the throne going, holy, holy, holy. Now I know that in Hebrew that's just the way of saying holiest, but I also get the impression that there was a recognition, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man. You get these clues. There's a plural that's used. But even so, God is so determined to get it across to us. The Lord your God is one, 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 one. And then hold on. Three. No, one. Well, we've got to accept God's revelation of himself as it is. You know, sometimes we try and straighten it all out. And tell, I think I've got it. I can explain it better than God explained it. This is how it works, okay? I don't know how it works. But I do know this much that Jesus was willing to give himself for us. That God was not victimizing anyone. But God himself was saying, I will pay the price. I will pay the price. Now that's incredible. It's a bit as if the judge is sitting there in court and the condemned person stands in front and the judge says, you are guilty and I pass sentence on you and it's the death sentence. And then he comes down from the bench and says, and if you'll just allow me, I will pay the price for you. You can go free. I'll die. You can go for free. That's exactly what it's like. And the Bible uses a technical word called justified, which just means legally acquitted. Because God was willing to give himself, we can be legally acquitted. And once you're acquitted, you're acquitted. You're free. Because he paid the price. But can you see this is such a big concept. It's amazing, it's incredible, it is wonderful. But it took the whole of the Old Testament to try and get the message across so that when he came, lights could go on. Ah, now not everyone's light went on, even with all of that preparation. Because the Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. Because they struggled Sometimes it was because of an unwillingness. One of the scriptures that amuses me, and I must admit, I find lots of scriptures quite amusing, but this one, you know, the wise men, when they come to Jerusalem, consult with all the theologians of the day to say, where is the Christ going to be born? And they all say, Oh, Bethlehem, Judea because it says, you know, Bethlehem, you know. So why were they in Jerusalem? Yeah, I mean, you know if 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 you know that Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem, you should be in Bethlehem. But no, 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 you see, it's it's we're clever, we've worked it out. But it's not the cleverness of working it out, it's the cleverness of putting yourself in the position to receive that makes the difference, doesn't it? And when Jesus came to his own, it wasn't that God hadn't made it clear enough. It's just that when Jesus comes, it demands something of us that some of us are not prepared to give. You see, because God had to make salvation totally accessible. It's not dependent on your IQ. It's not based on how many degrees you have. It's not something you can buy. And for people with a lot of money, that's an offence. For people with a lot of brain, it's an offence. What must I do to be saved? And people are looking for something like incredible, you know. Stand upside down for an hour in a bucket of water. You know Anything that's incredible so I can say, I've now earned my salvation. But God says, no, you can't earn this. You can't earn this. Entry level has got to be so low that people with only half a brain cell and no money in their pocket or whatever, uh, you know, never seen a bar of soap, never read a book, You know, the sort of people that you would think, don't get a second look. God says, they're coming in the same way as everybody else. And then some people, when they discover that, they say, well, that's not for me then, is it? (laughs) Of course it's for you, but the problem is you've got to stoop down low enough to get in, haven't you? You've got to come down from that high and mighty position where he says, look at how many degrees I've gotten. You know, top man in Mensa or something like this and... God says, no. You just have to take it at that level. It's a case of stoop down and drink and live, isn't it? But hey, you know, these things challenge us. I I was pretty arrogant, to be honest. In fact, I was insufferably arrogant. And God somehow managed to get through to me and then I discovered that verse and I love this passage where Paul makes it so plain, because I think Paul had a little bit of a similar problem. But uh, when he's talking about not many mighty, not many noble are called, which is an amazing situation and how God has chosen the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. He says this and he uses this Old Testament quotation. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross... Is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Well it's nice to have the announcement. But the next verse says this So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I love that. One minute God's saying, I'll do this, and the next minute says, so where are the wise then? Where are the disputers of this age? Where are they all? And really, in the face of God, he has this amazing ability to humble the most arrogant. Some of us think that we can outthink God, but it's only because he chooses to hide things from the wise and prudent and reveal them to babes. So much so that when Jesus prayed and his disciples were eavesdropping on his prayer, they heard him say, Father, I just thank you that you hide these things from the wise and prudent and reveal them to babes. How do you think it made the disciples feel? Well, like babies. <laughs> they'd realise that it wasn't because they were ultra-special. It was because they were utterly simple. Revealed to babes. That's how we have to come in. The Bible can do this for us. if We read it, take the trouble to see what God is saying. God went to all of these lengths to prepare a people who could teach and show and say, this is what it's about. When he came as the lamb who was going to lay down his life, there had been a whole history of lambs that had laid down their lives (laughs) so that we might understand. When he, the son, came and gave himself, you could look back to Isaac and Abraham. There were so many things that you could look at. You could look at the law and you can see, I now know what God wants and I can see that I can't make it in my own strength. But there is a way. There is a way, and that way is there in Jesus. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. In the fullness of time. Part of that fullness of time is the setting of Scripture. God had to set the scene. And I'm so glad that the revelation that God gave was written down. At one point, it was just communicated word of mouth. But isn't it great that God, in his wisdom, sent Moses (laughs) into Pharaoh's palace? He grew up in a culture where they produced papyrus and knew how to write, and God had got his first scribe, and all that which had previously been taught by word of mouth was now committed so that we all these centuries later have got the benefit of being able to read it. God was so wise in the way that he's put it all together. There is a setting in scripture and it's all preparatory. It's like he leads us right up to that moment where we're waiting for the sun to come. And then when the sun comes, when he rises with healing in his wings, when he, the anointed one who's been promised, comes, because Christ means the anointed one, And please, don't think that Jesus became the anointed one when he was anointed. He was the anointed one that was prophesied from the beginning. The anointing that he received demonstrated that he was the anointed one. It was a confirmatory anointing, not a transforming anointing. The anointing that we receive transforms us, but the anointing that Jesus received confirmed him in who he is called to be. Jesus, the central anointing theme. The prophets speak, Christ speaks, and then the apostles speak. And that gives us the Bible. If you worry about, is the Bible reliable? Well, Jesus totally trusted the Old Testament and quoted it regularly. So he knows it's authentic. And he said that the apostles would be led into all truth by the Holy Spirit. So, not only did he, as it were, sanction everything that had gone before, he also sanctioned that which was to come, that was going to be written. So, Jesus is the key to saying, yes, we can trust the Scriptures. Of course, there's all sorts of other tests that you can do. You can test it historically and everything else, and I don't think the Bible is going to be found wanting But isn't it great to know that Jesus is the centre point of scripture? Let me move on and talk a little bit about the historical setting. And maybe what would help us here is just to read a few verses from Acts chapter 2. Because Peter on the day of Pentecost is very aware of the historical setting. He says this, Acts 2.22, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held By it, And if we read on, you can see again just the place of scripture. For David says, concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter um, goes on, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing these things spoke. Can you see how it works? That's scripture. But let me talk about history. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus comes at the fullness of time. And when you look in Daniel chapter 2, there is a prophecy there about a succession of nations. Dominant kingdoms. Starting with the Babylonian kingdom, which is the golden head of the statue. Moving on to the shared kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And then coming to The iron, which is... Well, first of all, you've got the rest of the the body, which is the Greek kingdom, and then you come to the the legs of iron, which are Rome, And then there's a big debate about the iron and the clay mixture, depending how you read it. To a large extent, depending how you understand the stone cut out without human hands and filling the whole earth. If you see that as the church, then you understand the clay and the iron as being the divided Roman kingdom, which happened and you had an east and west Roman empire. Some people think it's going to be a re-established Roman empire that will see a millennial kingdom coming in. But that's not the issue for us at the moment. When the Old Testament ended, we'd had the Babylonian kingdom, we'd had the Medes and the Persians, but the Greeks hadn't yet come. And the Romans hadn't come but it's interesting that in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was doing certain things in the earth historically that were relevant. When the Greeks came, they spread their language everywhere. For the first time since the Tower of Babel, it was possible to communicate Almost in a lingua franca where people would know a language and be able to effectively understand one another. That's what the Greeks did. And then the Romans come and the Romans have their, their legal system. And they start putting in that in place. And despite all of the complications of Roman law, there was the Pax Romana and there was a certain amount of peace and stability under the Roman rule. These things were necessary. God was putting the legal framework with its crucifixion system and the language framework. He was putting this all together so that when the Christ came, the historical setting was right. You see, there needed to be a a level of globalisation in a sense that made it possible for the gospel to spread. And it was incredible how quickly the gospel spread. Isn't it amazing what God was doing? In the fullness of time he sent his son, born of a woman, that's spelt out in Galatians 4. Under the law, because he had to come into that system, that temporary holding system, in order to redeem people from it and to give us the opportunity to become the sons and daughters of God. We need to reflect on just how much God is a God of history. History is under his control. History is part of the context that God provides for the things that he's doing on the earth. He's the one who in the end will open the seals of history. Don't think that history is outside of his hands. He's got it in his control. But I want to touch on one more thing as we're looking at this context of Christ's coming. I want to look at the spiritual context of Christ's coming. And I want to read some verses from Luke chapter 2. Wonderful passage here. Two amazing people. Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 22. Now, when the days of her purification, this is Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were completed, all confirmation that Christ came under the law, they brought him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Isn't that great? This is the Lord being presented to the Lord. Fascinating. (laughs) Fascinating. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We could really reflect on that for a bit, but never mind. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is the, the poor people's offering. So you can see where Joseph and Mary were on the social scale. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord Now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken to him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined... For the fall and rising, note the order of that, the fall and the rising of many in Israel, to go down before you come up, experience the crucifixion before the resurrection. And for a sign which is spoken against. And then he says this to Mary, yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I think that was what she experienced as she stood before the cross when Jesus died. Particularly that moment when Jesus said, woman, behold your son and separated himself from her and gave her to John it was an extraordinary moment but necessary for her to relate to Jesus as her saviour and not just as her offspring that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I just want to say to you, there were a lot of people who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. And I think that is significant. We've seen that the scriptural setting was in place. Then we have that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where certain historical things are put in place. But there also needs to be a spiritual setting for the coming of Christ. And that spiritual setting has to be the yearning and the longing of God's people. That looking for the consolation of Israel. Simeon, weeping before God, saying, God, you promised me I won't die until I've seen the Lord's Christ. God does not give into total indifference. God gives when there's a passion to receive him. Now, he doesn't wait till everyone's ready to receive, because we know that not everyone was. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't take that many intercessors to bring the will of God into being. You don't have to wait till the whole nation is saying, do it, Lord. It just takes a Simeon and an Anna and maybe a few others and they are seeking God and praying and believing and standing on the prophetic word, taking the scriptures and saying, God, surely this is the moment. And then they see the fulfillment. That spiritual setting is so, so important. There are various ways of reading Revelation chapter 12 and I know some people have got all sorts of theories on this but if you just think for a moment that it could be that the man-child that's referred to there is actually the Christ as so many people in the past took that to be. And you do see that the woman that's described, you know, almost in that cosmic setting with the sun and the moon is a picture of those that are, in a sense, representing groaning creation, even a groaning universe, which is saying, we need to see the Christ's come. And you're prepared to see that maybe the 12-star symbolism is just an indication that this is God's people, the 12 tribes, maybe. When you see it like that, you've got a sense that this yearning, this... Longing to give birth. You could say that it wasn't just Mary that gave birth to Jesus, but it was all of the longing, praying people that have been crying out to God through the years, saying, oh Lord, come, come, come Lord Jesus. Let the anointed one come. Fulfill your word. And that passion, that yearning, is something that God always responds to. This is the context of Christ's coming. I'm confident in Christ's coming when I look at this confidence. I can see, God, your wisdom is awesome. You said it there in scripture. You did it in history. You did it in terms of spiritual yearning and people crying out to you, passion put in people's hearts and you came. But listen, God wants to come to human hearts now. And these things can still prepare the way if you haven't yet received the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, you can get a scriptural setting for the coming of Christ into your own heart by looking at God's word and saying, this must be fulfilled in me, this must be fulfilled in me, this must be fulfilled in me. I don't want to depart until my eyes have seen the glory of God. And Christ can come to you. And the historical setting. God is still in charge of history. And there's no better moment than this moment to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is still the God who responds to spiritual yearning and spiritual longing. And if you're crying out and saying, God, I need to know the fulfilment of your plan in my life. Then God will respond to that. His plan is awesome. God himself becomes man that he might bring humanity back to himself. But take it out of the plural for the moment. Just bring it down to the personal. Because if there was no humanity but just you, he would still have done it. He would still have done it. And he's prepared to do it for you right now. I'm going to pray. And I want you to open your heart. There's a context for Christ's coming. God has set that context. he come to you right now. We can praise him that he came and fulfilled all the types and figures of the Old Testament. But he can come to our lives. Lord Jesus, as we come before you in this moment, we want to thank you that we can have confidence in you because we see something of the wonder and the order of your almighty plan. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we just want to say thank you. We open up our hearts to receive from you. We want to know your fullness. We want to give you our praise. It says that you came to your own and they received you not, but to as many as received you. To them you gave the right to become children of God. Lord, we just want to move into that realm where we can say we have the right to be your children, to be your sons and daughters, redeemed through the blood that you shed. Lord, give us a confidence in our Christianity, we pray, because we have a confidence in you, Lord Jesus. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Amen thank you for listening if you'd like to know more about hugh osgood's ministry visit www.hughosgood.com there you'll find ministry updates new and free bible teaching resources and videos as well as information on upcoming events and broadcasts on tv and radio we trust you have been encouraged by this message